as a jujitsu instructor, my absolute favorite classes to teach are beginners. I love, I'm not one of those black belts that only wants to teach the advanced students or the competitive students. No, I want the people who don't know jack squat about jujitsu. I want to show them the beauty of the art and the application of basic techniques that make an incredible difference. I love seeing people feeling empowered when they learn something or when they realize they can do something that they had no idea that they could have done before. That's literally one of my favorite things about teaching jujitsu. And it's the same thing with the Bible. I love teaching the Bible to people who either don't know anything about the Bible or who just grew up maybe hearing Sunday school stories or listening to sermons, but they've never really studied it for themselves. Those are my absolute favorite people to teach. Now, I don't mind talking nerdy and getting into all the details and the background and the Hebrew and Greek and all of that stuff with other scholarly Bible nerds out there, but nothing really compares to me to guiding someone through scripture in detail for the first time. In this episode, we're going to look at Exodus. If you haven't caught previous videos in this series, go back and check them out. They're in the Bible Backgrounds playlist here on Disciple Dojo's YouTube channel. And while you're doing that, we would really appreciate it if you would click the subscribe button and even more so if you would click the notifications icon because that tells YouTube, hey, we want to see more from this channel and that helps bump us up in the algorithm. So if you could do that, it doesn't cost you anything and it really, really helps us out. Also, whether you're a jujitsu nerd or a Bible nerd or a combination of both like me, head over to our online store and check out some of our designs. In addition to gifts like mugs and t-shirts, we also have some grappling specific gear. We have flip-flops so you don't have to walk your dirty feet from the bathroom to the mat. Nobody likes that. We also have leggings, rash guards. So take a look over there. And again, anything you buy really helps us out and it helps spread the word about Disciple Dojo. All right, let's get into seven tips from a black belt on how to read the book of Exodus. Tip number one, forget all of the cartoons, forget all of the movies, forget the talking vegetables or the storybook Bibles, and just read the book. Get a translation you can understand and read the book of Exodus. Don't read a story here and a story there. Read the whole book. And when you've done that, pick up another translation and read it again. Familiarity with the book will help you see the big picture and it'll help dispel some of the caricatures that a lot of the pop culture renditions of Exodus often reinforce. Yes, the Simpsons episode where they fall asleep in church and Bart dreams about the Exodus, it was hilarious. It made me laugh. It was in no way reflective of the actual Exodus account. So make sure you know the real story. Then when you see other renditions of it, whether it's Prince of Egypt, whether it's Charlton Heston, the Ten Commandments, whether it's that abysmally awful Ridley Scott version a few years ago, you will be able to engage and intelligently criticize and interact with any of those depictions if you know the book itself. So that's tip one, read the book. Tip two, Read the book in its covenant context. This is absolutely essential for understanding Exodus. Exodus is the continuation of Genesis. Big surprise. The book's name in Hebrew is Shemot because it begins with, these are the names, Shemot, of the sons of Israel. 
See, Genesis ended with Israel being a family, the seed of Abraham being about 70 people, having taken refuge down in Egypt from a famine. And it ended on a fairly happy note. But nevertheless, the promise that God made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 15 was going to unfold, which is that his descendants would be slaves in a foreign nation and that God would bring them up out of that nation and back into the land that he had given them. So in Exodus, we see the beginning of this plan starting to unfold. Between Genesis and Exodus, you turn the page and there's been 400 years of silent suffering. And now it's time for God to finally act and to redeem his people. It's no coincidence that the Old Testament and the Christian canon ends with another 400 years of silent suffering. Before then, the New Testament begins to unfold once again using patterns seen in Exodus, the rescue of God's people and the new covenant. So we need to see Exodus as part of this long spanning history, meta-narrative of God's covenant people, taking the seed of Abraham from about 70 individuals to a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, bringing them to himself in the wilderness to transform them from a mixed multitude, a rabble of former slaves of the empire of Egypt, descendants of Abraham, as well as Gentiles who united themselves to Israel when they came out of Egypt. Some people overlook that point, but it's pretty crucial and shaping them into a covenant priestly nation, giving them an identity, transforming them, marrying them, and then dwelling among them rather than far away off on a mountain somewhere. And it ends with a cliffhanger. God's presence fills the tabernacle at the end of Exodus, and then the question remains, okay, now what? And that's where the book of Leviticus picks up. So seeing Exodus in its cultural, in its covenant, in its biblical meta-narrative context is crucial for understanding the book as a whole and for seeing just how formative it is in Israel's identity. Exodus is the gospel for Israel. It is the most foundational event in the history of Israel. And everything that's going to come after in the collective experience of Israel is going to in some way be traced back to, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who brought you up from the land of slavery. That's what Exodus is giving God's people, their identity, who God is, who they are, and what the relationship between the two of them is supposed to be. And that brings us to tip number three of how to read Exodus, which is understand that you're reading historiography, not dry history. Exodus happened. It's a historical event. Scholars who say, well, the Exodus probably didn't happen. It was probably some Hebrews that gradually migrated and then they made up accounts to read back into their history to give them this identity, blah, blah, blah. Okay, fine, whatever. That's an older scholarly paradigm that's, I think, next to useless in terms of actually understanding the book itself. If Exodus didn't happen in history, then the entire identity of God's people is built on a gigantic lie. But just because Exodus is historical doesn't mean that what it giving us is neutrally crafted modern history. No, Exodus is historic writing, historiography. It's stylized. It's written according to a number of genres. It has narrative material. It has old Hebrew poetry in Exodus 15. It has covenant treaty elements, the events surrounding Mount Sinai. It has legal material. It has genealogy and it has instruction. 
So Exodus is a mixed bag. Most people stop reading after they get to Sinai because that's when it shifts from narrative to these other genres. But it's important to understand Exodus is the foundation document in Israel's history. It's setting out who they are. It's their history, it's their constitution, it's their bill of rights, whatever analogy you wanna use, but in an ancient setting. And so that's the purpose of it. When it comes to the details, we have to be okay with some ambiguity. We have to be okay with not having the details as precise as we would like them. So give you four quick examples of where people try to bring more precision to the text than the text allows. One, the date of the Exodus. There are two legitimately arguable dates for when the Exodus events could have happened, the 15th century BC and the 13th century BC. And there's good arguments for either of those. So we have to hold whatever date we ascribe it to pretty loosely and see how either could fit what we're reading. The Pharaoh of the Exodus, he's unnamed. That's intentional. We'll talk about that in a second. But we have to understand that the Pharaoh of the Exodus could have been Ramses, could have been Tutmosis, it could have been a number of Pharaohs. The whole point is he is not named. So we have to hold that loosely. The geography of the Exodus. Where did Israel cross Yam Suf, the Red Sea or Sea of Reeds? Where is Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb? There's legitimate debate and there are numerous proposals. We've done a video here this summer on all of those different theories. And if that's something that interests you, definitely check it out. It was fun to do. Get Google Earth out and kind of look at the possible routes and the actual mountains that have been suggested as Mount Sinai. But once again, whatever you conclude on that, you have to hold it loosely as you do with the numbers that are found in the book of Exodus. Numbers aren't always literal exact numbers. Sometimes they're estimates. Sometimes they're rounded off. Sometimes they're symbolic numbers. Sometimes there's even a question of how you translate the word itself. So when you read that 600,000 men came up out of Egypt, which would put the population of all of Israel at around two to three million, which seems almost impossible to even comprehend, it's helpful to realize that that word translated as thousand is elif, and elif can mean thousand, and it does mean thousand a lot of times, but it can also mean something like clan or regiment or tribe, and it has that meaning elsewhere in scripture. So you could have 600,000 men coming up out of Egypt, or you could have 600 regiments, 600 clans of fighting men coming out at the Exodus. And how you interpret that will determine how you view the geopolitical reality of the Exodus itself and what you look for when you're looking through archeology span and recreations of how this might have unfolded. So whatever you conclude on things like the numbers of the Exodus, the location of Yom Suf, Mount Sinai, the date of the Exodus, which Pharaoh it was, just hold those details loosely because those aren't what the text itself seems to focus on. Which brings us to tip number four when reading Exodus. The text itself seems to be much more focused on giving us polemical theology than precisely detailed history. So be aware, keep an eye out for polemical theology throughout the book. Because Exodus, more than anything else, proclaims that Yahweh is king. Yahweh is ruler, not just over a territory, but over all of creation. Unlike the gods of Egypt, unlike the gods of Canaan, unlike the gods of Mesopotamia, Yahweh was not a tribal, geographically limited deity. And while Egypt built itself at the time as the most powerful empire that had ever existed, Exodus shows, no, you're nothing compared to the God of the universe, and your gods are less than nothing compared to his power. Each of the plagues in Exodus, they aren't just random events, and they aren't just this naturally unfolding cascade of natural disasters. No, the plagues of Exodus are each aimed at a specific area 
or creature or realm that different Egyptian gods were believed to rule over. Everything from the Nile, to frogs, to cattle, to flies, to darkness, to storm, all the way up to the firstborn of the sun god Ra himself, Pharaoh, the plagues in Exodus pick off the gods of Egypt one by one. And that's not accidental. Egypt is equated with the sea, with the chaos serpent, with Rahab, as it's called in the ancient Near East. And so the Exodus itself is a polemic against the evil of the Egyptian empire and the would-be divine king Pharaoh. The pharaohs who spent all of their time organizing monuments to themselves, ensuring that their name would last throughout Egyptian history, don't even get named in Exodus. That's not accidental. The descriptions of God's temple that he has his people build after his victory over their enemies. This tabernacle with its priesthood contains all of this Eden imagery that harkens back to Genesis and that has resonances throughout the ancient Near East as well. That is not accidental. Now we've done a whole video series here at Disciple Dojo that unpacks these. So check out the Bible Backgrounds playlist because we go into much more detail on things like this that the average reader just doesn't know. And that's fine. That's why we do what we do here. But just know as you're reading Exodus, you're reading polemical theology in the highest degree. And you're reading God's saving of his firstborn son. He literally refers to Israel as my firstborn son. And that brings us to tip number five when reading Exodus. Pay attention for all of the gospel-y, Christian-y sounding terms that you're going to hear in Exodus, because that's where most of them originate. We think of things like getting saved, salvation, deliverance, redeemed, redemption, the elect, sanctified, consecrated, holiness. We think of these things as primarily having to do with New Testament inward faith, but these terms all come from Exodus. The entire pattern, the entire paradigm of salvation in the New Testament is the Exodus event. There's a reason that Jesus held up the cup at Passover commemorating the Exodus and told his disciples, this is my blood of the covenant shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. He was taking Exodus imagery, Passover imagery, stuff that actually happened in Israel's history, and he was instilling it with a whole new layer of meaning. He was using it as the paradigm for which the gospel itself would be presented, where once again, God redeems his people from slavery, this time not from Pharaoh, but from the one who animates and empowers all the Pharaohs of the world, Satan, bringing them out not from literal slavery, but from spiritual bondage to sin itself, the ultimate master, showing them grace and only after saving them, then giving them the means by which they would live in a continuous relationship with him through the law. Even in Exodus, salvation was never earned. This is crucial to keep in mind. When you're reading Exodus, notice that law doesn't come until halfway through the book. The law is given in chapter 20. Salvation is everything before that. It's not like this is a common mostly Protestant misunderstanding of biblical theology and of Old Testament Israel. Israel did not think they had to earn their salvation by keeping the law. Israel always saw the law as a reflection of God's grace. The law was never how you got saved. The law was how you live as those who have been saved already. Grace always comes before law. Old Testament or New Testament. 
So the more we understand that concept, the more we know the actual words and terms and images that we see in Exodus, then when we turn the page and we get to the New Testament, it's like, whoa, I am hearing echoes all over the place of the Exodus event. And that's intentional. But we have to know the Exodus event itself first, or we'll miss a lot of those echoes. And that brings us to tip six. Know that the genre that you're reading when you come to those law sections of Exodus is ancient law, not modern law. It makes a difference because we, especially in, in our context here in North America, we think of things that's like, if there's not a law against it, that means I can do it. And you can get off on technicalities and loopholes if you didn't technically break a law. But that's not how law worked in the ancient world. It's definitely not how God's covenant law worked. Covenant law was given to solidify the relationship between the suzerain, which is the ancient king, and the vassal that served that suzerain, in this case, Israel. So to maintain this suzerain-vassal relationship where the ancient king had done something magnanimous, had delivered the vassal, had come to the aid of the vassal, had done something that the vassal then pledged themselves to the suzerain as their vassal, that relationship was solidified through a covenant. It involved sharing a covenant meal. It involved doing something with the blood of the sacrificial animal that would then be eaten as part of the meal. There were all of these ways in the ancient Near East that these covenants were brought into being, were inaugurated. But a significant aspect of this covenant relationship was that there was an agreed upon relationship that would consist of behavior on the part of the suzerain and on the part of the vassal. So the suzerain would offer protection, would offer provision, would be a good and just suzerain king. And then out of gratitude, the vassal would pledge to do certain things to be a loyal vassal. I'll provide this much in taxes. We'll send aid whenever there's need in military conflicts. We won't make treaties with other suzerains. We'll be an extension of your kingdom. So ancient law, especially covenant law, Law had this context in mind. It wasn't aimed at policing the behavior of individuals, although it did do that. It was much more aimed at keeping the relationship community-wide between the suzerain and the vassal. So the laws in the ancient world, and particularly Hebrew law, was given to teach, not necessarily to legislate. What I mean by that was the laws revealed the character of God the laws gave God's people the type of God he was and the type of relationship he expected of his people. What types of things would please him as their king? The law was not a written code that legislated every possible scenario in exhaustive detail. I mean, there are some apodictic laws. There are some like thou shalt, thou shalt not, end of story. But most of the laws after the Ten Commandments, especially most of the laws that kind of unpack the Ten Commandments in everyday setting, those are casuistic laws. Those are case laws. Those are if such and such happens, then you're to do this. So it was the job of judges to know the law, to be able to then reason through the paradigm that the law gave them to whatever case presented itself before them. So the law wasn't primarily what we think of today as modern legal legislation. It was Torah. Torah comes from the verb yara. It means to point. Teaching is a way you could translate it or instruction. The law was instructing Israel. It was pointing them to God and it was pointing out the way that they as God's people were to live in the ancient world. So if we are reading the law, 
then we have to read it as that. It's not our covenant law if we're new covenant believers. We don't live under Torah law anymore. But the principles of the lawgiver are still the same. So our job when we're reading the law is to say, what is the principle behind this law? How would this law make a difference in that ancient cultural setting? Understand that principle. Then look at ways in our setting today where that law's principle can be applied. That's how we keep the law as new covenant believers. Now, there's a lot that could be said on that. This is, again, this is an intro level lesson. This is not black belt level. So if you want to go deeper on that concept in our course here at Disciple Dojo, Bible for the rest of us, we have an entire session on how to interpret and how to live out Old Testament law sections, whether it's Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. We also have a podcast series and video here on Disciple Dojo, our playlist, Exodus, God is King. It came out right around the time of the movie Exodus, Gods and Kings. It walks chapter by chapter through the entire book of Exodus. So if this video piques your interest and you're like, all right, I'm ready to start. I want to read Exodus, but you kind of need a guide. You want kind of a more than an introductory lesson, so to speak, then check out that video series and follow along each week as you read through the book yourself. You'll see all the ways in which this book is incredibly applicable and incredibly profound even for those of us living in the New Testament era. And speaking of resources, that brings us finally to tip number seven, get good resources. Now, when it comes to study Bibles, see the study Bibles that we talked about in our last video on Genesis, because those are the exact same ones I think do the best job when it comes to Exodus. Then after study Bibles, you may want to look at some commentaries. And I'll give you three this time that I think are worth noting. The first one is the Story of God Bible Commentary by Christopher Wright on Exodus. Anything by Christopher Wright, you should just get and read. That's always going to be my recommendation from Disciple Dojo. But this is a good commentary that you don't have to have any technical knowledge of Hebrew. It doesn't get bogged down in a lot of those scholarly arguments about the date of the Exodus or the composition theories and all of that stuff. It just gives you the overview of Exodus within the overall story of the whole Bible, which is what the Story of God Bible Commentary series focuses on as a whole. So this volume by Wright, Christopher Wright, recommend it. Another one I recommend is the volume in the Interpretation series. This one's by Terence Fretheim, Freetham, Fretham. I can never pronounce his name. I've only seen it written. Regardless of how you pronounce Terence's name, this is a great commentary. It walks you through Exodus and sort of helps you interpret the theological themes of the book itself. It's from a more mainline, some might say liberal perspective, but the insights and the observations that you find in this are excellent. And I've definitely learned a lot from it in teaching Exodus over the years. And then lastly, for those who have some experience with Hebrew and are able to interact with more scholarly discussions, I recommend the Exodus commentary by Doug Stewart in the New American Commentary series. Doug Stewart was my Hebrew professor. I was in his Hebrew class while he was writing this commentary. So a lot of the insights from this commentary are things that we discussed in detail in his Hebrew class, where we literally just translated the entire book of Exodus and then talked through it chapter by chapter, looking at the grammar and the syntax and the vocabulary and all of the Hebrew idiosyncrasies that the text has. So I recommend this commentary, even if you disagree with some of Stuart's conclusions, which I do from time to time, it really does 
guys interact in much more detail with the historicity and the background of the Exodus as it's written in the text. In addition to those, I want to point out three more resources that aren't commentaries, but will shed light on how you read Exodus that I have found incredibly helpful in my own teaching on Exodus over the years. When it comes to understanding the symbolism of those later chapters of Exodus, the tabernacle, the priesthood, the offerings, the law, Vern Poitras's book, The Shadow of Christ and the Law of Moses is wonderful, particularly the first half of the book where he unpacks the tabernacle symbolism. Later in the book, when he starts to get into some of the laws and, and how the laws can be applied today and this and that, I, I don't track with him quite as much, but the first half of this book is worth the price of the entire book alone. Amazing unpacking of the detail and the theological significance of the imagery you find in the tabernacle and the priesthood system. And for those who want to know more about polemical theology and how Exodus and other books of the Old Testament use concepts from the ancient Near East, but in a way that subverts them or repurposes them for rhetorical points that the authors of scripture want to make, I recommend John Currid's little book, Against the Gods. I say little, it's not very long, it's a short one, but this is great. He goes into other ancient cultures and how they presented certain things and then how those concepts find their way into the Exodus account and what that then is saying about the author of Exodus and their view to the gods of the surrounding people. So this is a great engaging little book. I definitely recommend it. Don't be fooled by its size. There is some powerful stuff in here. And then lastly, if you are just starting out and you don't know much about the Old Testament, the law, Mount Sinai, what it all means or why it should matter, you've got to read Carmen Imes' book, Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters. If you caught our interview here with Carmen a couple of months ago on the channel, we talked about why the Old Testament matters. We talked about why Old Testament scholarship is so fascinating. We talked about all kinds of stuff. It was such a fun interview. And heads up, Carmen is going to be back here in the dojo in the very near future for another follow-up interview about her new work on being God's image. So stay tuned for that we'll preview of coming attractions. But for anyone at any level of biblical understanding, I cannot recommend this book highly enough. Not just because Carmen's a friend, but because this is one of the better works, more accessible works of biblical scholarship out there that anybody can pick up and immediately start to learn from. And as a bonus, the book even has QR codes to the Bible Project videos that deal with these concepts, and each chapter has discussion questions. So you could use this as a small group study, and you would have a tremendous understanding of the Exodus event and Mount Sinai and the law and the Old Testament, and it will deepen your understanding of the gospel. Definitely check it out. So those are my seven tips for reading the book of Exodus. You could spend a lifetime studying Exodus. Scholars have spent lifetimes just studying Exodus, and you'll still never exhaust all there is to find in the text. But just because you can't ever master the text doesn't mean that you can't understand the text at all or be transformed by it. So start reading Exodus. Get through the book. Read it multiple times. This is the foundational document of the entire people of God, Old and New Testament. Of all the books in the Old Testament, Exodus is arguably the most important. At least the New Testament authors certainly seem to think so. 
So let me know what you think in the comments below. If you have any tips on how people can better read and understand Exodus, feel free to leave them. And if you appreciate this teaching ministry and you want to see more of these videos, one of the ways you can do that that really helps us is become a monthly dojo donor. Disciple Dojo is entirely nonprofit. We're funded solely through donations. So if you would like to partner with us at any dollar amount a month, it would be greatly appreciated. You can do that at the link in the description below over on our website. Okay, that's it for this session, class. As always, whether it's jujitsu or biblical theology, my advice is the same. Go train.